Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Tipsy Ghost. We are your tipsy hosts, Sarah, Sarah, and Lizzie. Hey, guys. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry um, if I stole your thunder right there. No, you always say hello first, and for some reason I was just like... You're ready to go. It was, it was, I was just going to say hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello to you all. Hi. Um, we've got a little bit of a doozy of a topic tonight, don't we? We should probably jump into it. I think so. And, you know, just a warning to all of our listeners, as we always do, we give warnings out. But this one is especially sad, it seems like. So, um, you know, just strap in. It's it's a topic that I think most of the U.S. world is familiar with. And it's also kind of recent. So you may remember this title, title, this topic, this topic. That's what I meant. So it might be difficult to listen to. If it is, we're just going to throw out all the trigger warnings for you guys. This might be a little bit of a different episode because we're going to be a little bit more serious because of it. Look at us. We're so serious. I don't try. think we can make any promises, but That's we do true. want to respect the facts <laughs> yes. and the people. For sure. So we're going to talk to you guys about Jonestown tonight. We we are going to be respectful yes. of the topic and the pe- the people and the situation. But, um, we, you know, we are who we are. We laugh and we, and still the tips we have jokes. Yeah. So. Okay, anyhow, I am going to start us off by talking about the man himself, unfortunately. So he was born James Warren Jones on May 13th, 1931 in rural Indiana. His parents were James Thurman Jones and Lynetta Putnam, and he went by the nickname Jimmy as a child. So Jim Jones. Jim Jones. Jim Jones. Jim and his family lived in a small shack outside of a town called Lynn, in Indiana. And this was during the Great Depression. So his family was very poor, mm-hmm. like many, many people. Like most of the US. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah, if you know anything about the Great Depression, it was very, very hard times. They lived in a shack. It had no plumbing or electricity. And um, they had to rely on his family members or his mother's family members quite a bit for just money to survive. Okay. According to many different authors, his mother had, quote, no natural maternal instincts. Um, and she frequently neglected Jim. She expressed disappointment at becoming a mother and was often bitter and unhappy about their family's financial and social situation. His father suffered from many injuries that he received during World War I and spent a lot of time in the hospital. So as you can kind of gather, he spent a lot of time alone without his parents. Absent parents, parents, yeah. Yep. So mom was either at work. She finally got a job at the urging of her family members, and dad was often sick. So he, Jim, wandered the streets quite a bit, didn't really have much supervision. Sometimes he would even be naked wandering around in the streets. So the neighbors saw all of this happening and they kind of decided to take him under their wing um, one by one. But specifically, there was a woman named Myrtle Kennedy, who was the wife of a local pastor. And she kind of took a liking to Jim. She really thought she needed to take care of him. She looked out for him, and uh, Jim would often stay overnight at their house, mm-hmm. and Myrtle would provide him with meals and clothing and other gifts. One of these gifts was a Bible. Mm. She encouraged Jim to uh, follow the holiness code of the Nazarene Church. And I'm also going to throw you guys a little warning. I get into the weeds quite a bit with some of the religious aspect, and I'm sure you guys will as well. And full disclosure, I um, don't fully understand the differences in the religions that they're talking about. So I speak to them, but I don't quite understand. There's a lot to them. So I try my best. 
Bear with me. I will try to help if I can. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, she encouraged him to follow the holiness code of the Nazarene church. Um, you know, it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies, though, with Jim. The neighbors, they did take him under their wing and they looked out for him. But they also reported that he was a very unusual child. They said that he had strange religious practices and would misbehave in serious ways. So um, there's a lot of stories coming here. He would often steal candy from the merchants in town. He also used offensive language. (laughs) This did make me giggle a little bit. Uh And would regularly greet his neighbors by saying, Good morning, you son of a bitch. (laughs) I know, it made me laugh. I don't know why. Can you imagine like a little nine-year-old just greeting their... What? It's wild. I'd be like, excuse me. I know. Or, hello, you dirty bastard. Whoa. Wow. So you got both, you know, you can greet... Male or female. <laughs> Got it all covered. Got everything covered. That's very uh, personalized greetings right there. Uh, his mother did not approve and would I'm often sure. <laughs> beat him with a leather belt oh, to punish okay. him. Yeah. Pretty extreme. Other times he would put other children in life-threatening situations, then tell him he was guided by the angel of death. Mm-hmm. Those children would later say that he was fascinated with death and would always talk about it. Jim claimed that he had been given special powers, including the ability to fly. Mm. Oh, no. <laughs> this is not great either. Was that your flying sound? <laughs> no, that was a good like one. That, that was a, oh, you crash. might be a little off base here, buddy. I don't think you could fly. All the above. Probably shouldn't try it. <laughs> and side note, when I was reading this story, it made me think of the Saturday Night Live skit when Kate McKinnon talks about being abducted by aliens. Yes, oh my gosh, that's one of my favorite sketches. And being thrown out onto the roof of the building. Yes. Okay. So he tried to prove to the other kids that he could fly by jumping off the roof of the building. He is going to try it. Okay. (laughs) He did. (laughs) Don't try it. Yeah, I know. This is shocking, but spoiler alert, it it didn't work. He He did not fly. fly. No. He did, however, break his arm. Yeah, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> I can it. see that coming. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> with a broken arm? I, well, I didn't I've jump off a building. I've never broken a bone. Oh. But I have I jumped did. off the roof of my house onto a trampoline. <gasps> that is so did dangerous. I what feel if, like broken femurs are happening there. Listen, what <laughs> if your knees gave out and then your knees all of a sudden were in your chest, but your legs were That's still what down I picture. on your legs? Listen, I was also, in high school. What I did if, not think of this. What if the trampoline had a had a hole in it and you would just go through? It did not. What have if a hole you bounced it. off into really <laughs> How high? Did you bounce? That's why I was not friends with her in my <laughs> high school. And you would fall onto you know the spiky metal fences. <laughs> In suburbia, Spear we don't have spiky metal fences. Listen, that is where the spiky metal fences are. <laughs> I suburbia. am not living in like a gothic house. Maybe your neighbors were. I had a wooden fence. This makes me so uncomfortable <laughs> so for we moved, little Lindsay. We moved the um I wasn't little, I was in high school. Me and my brother, we <laughs> moved the trampoline and mm-hmm. our guest room had like a little slope, like right outside the window there from the roof. So we would climb out that guest room window and stand on that little slope of the roof on the second story and jump off of that onto the trampoline in the summertime did you have to make sure you hit it at just the right angle yes yes i made my brother fly off my brother went first to make sure it was okay and then his friend went and then i was the third one i went after that i saw did you ever sled down the roof too no (laughs) no i did not oh my gosh i'm (laughs) terrified for you riskier than just jumping off but i don't know and i have never broken a bone (laughs) anyway please go on he broke a bone okay it was an arm yeah jumped off a roof All right, but this did not deter him. 
he uh, just kept on telling people he had powers. Yeah, well, okay, okay. Just yeah. I guess a follow-up question. I, pro- I hope it's for Lindsay because I probably don't know the answer. Lindsay, do you think whenever he jumped off the roof, he like flopped his arms or did he just like pretend he had the power and he was Superman? I, I think I'm he pretended he had the power and yeah. I just keep thinking of Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> he is falling with style. Do you think he went head first or feet first? Oh, let's hope he went feet first. Because I feel like that would have been like very badly if he went head first. Superman style. Oh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or did he just take a, what did he take break? a leap? An arm. Um, he, I think he went out on his stomach and he put his arms out and that's what <laughs> broke the fall there. <laughs> mm. Okay. Well, he was ahead of his time. He was the Buzz Lightyear, the OG. <laughs> he did not care. He was still going to tell people, yeah, I have powers. Okay. But- one of the strangest things, though, was when he would visit casket manufacturers in town and hold mock funerals. What? Jim. He would collect roadkill. No. <laughs> Why did I have this feeling you were going to chime in and say that was something you could do? <laughs> Wait, the roadkill or no, the, the, funerals? the funerals? The funerals. The casket. She the funerals. Do roadkill. No, no, I do. Think, it was before that. I, I do think that would be kind of fascinating. <laughs> to hold your own mock funeral. You know, to see casket factory. Oh. When you were a kid? I don't know. Uh, when I was a kid, no. Now? Yeah, sure. Why not? Well, Jim, he would collect roadkill <laughs> and organize elaborate funerals for them while he preached sermons. Oh, that's nice. Um, it's, it. I had, Listen, I don't know. Picking up. Feelings. Dead animals and with giving them off of the side of the road, giving them the closure they deserve. I don't know if that's what the intent. I don't know what the intent was. I, I, so he would invite other kids to watch him give these sermons. <laughs> hey, mom, I'm gonna go down the street. To Can Jim's you imagine for the possum on the side? But of the road. he also gave zero fucks if nobody showed up. Like he would just do it by himself. <laughs> it's just very weird. He was making his own fun as a kid. So many red flags fun, I'm seeing right now. Yes. Yeah, so many red flags. Yeah. Yes, I was surprised when I was reading about all that. Later in his life, he complained, or not complained, he might have complained, I don't know, but he claimed that he stole the pastor's Bible and put cow manure on one of the pages, like a little jokester. He also said that he replaced holy water with a cup of his own urine. Oh. Isn't holy water clear? Yes, it's water. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally just water that's been blessed. (laughs) Maybe he was really hydrated. (laughs) I don't know. I'm like, ooh, what a jokester. Um, After World War II began, he became enamored with Adolf Hitler Mm. and the Nazi party. He liked to pretend he was a dictator with the other children, forcing them to step in unison and hitting them if they did not obey. Jeez. He doesn't sound like a fun friend. (laughs) He's definitely the weird guy on the street. We're like, ooh, Jim's out. Maybe we should just stay inside. Mom, I'm going to – Jim's going to ask if I can come over. Just say no. Tell him no. Tell him no. Mom, I'm not going to another possum's funeral. (laughs) I didn't know this possum. I don't care. I'm sorry it died. Smells weird. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, as he got older, he became extremely interested in religion and social doctrines. He studied writings from Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Gandhi, and Adolf Hitler. Those are some – those are some names. He is covering the <laughs> whole gambit here. It is true. You got some Gandhi, you got some Hitler. Yeah, he's all over the place. In 1942, the Kennedy family, so remember Myrtle, the neighbor that took care of him. Okay, I was, oh, I was like, James the Kennedys? Wow. No, name was Myrtle Kennedy. <laughs> uh, they moved to Richmond, Indiana, and Jim went to visit them. Okay. After he returned to his hometown, he once again began acting very strangely. Did he ever stop? And this time it was different. Okay. So he started explaining sexual reproduction to young children. 
in a very graphic way, which as you can under- expect mm-hmm. that it upset the parents. That did not go over well. It, nope. Like a lead balloon. After all this happened, parents started keeping their kids away from him. Uh, by the time he went to high school, you can guess that he was a total outcast. Sure. I, I gathered that. Uh-huh. <laughs> In high school, he was a pretty good student. He made good grades. Like I mentioned earlier, he was into reading. I mean, he sounds intelligent. Yeah, he is. Uh, One bizarre habit that he had, though, was he would only speak to someone if he initiated the conversation. And he would completely (laughs) ignore people if they spoke to him first. Imagine somebody coming up to talk to him and he just turns and walks away. That's exactly right. Or just like... I hear nothing, like not just completely ignoring them. I was thinking like, how, how does that go over when you're in high school in class or like if a teacher's talking to you and you're like, arms crossed, I hear nothing. Uh, He would also wear Sunday church attire every day of the week Okay, and always carried his Bible with him. You never know when you're going to need to do a funeral. (laughs) Almost an impromptu sermon there in the middle of the hallway. There is a dead bird. (laughs) Hold on. Let me get my casket. Dearly beloved. <laughs> Do you think he used the same size casket for a bird as he did for... I don't know. I think he's um, probably had many caskets. Sounds like he had an in at the casket factory, so he didn't have whatever he wanted Good made. point. He probably knew how to make them. He would also interrupt his peers um, if he found them drinking alcohol. Yes, of course he did. Smoking or dancing. <gasps> and he would try to make them read the Bible with him. You gotta leave room for the Holy Spirit. I did find this interesting. (laughs) From an early age, though, he had a strong aversion towards racism, which I don't know why I find that interesting, probably because he's just kind of a, he's just a different kind of a guy, Mm -hmm. and you feel like he'd have very strong opinions. He was totally against racism. Um, In 1946, he began working as an orderly at Richmond Reed, sorry, Richmond's Reed Hospital. He met a nurse named Marceline Baldwin, and they began dating. So keep in mind, he was born in, what did I say, 1931? So he was 15 years old at this time, and he was dating this nurse. Okay. That sounds inappropriate because I I'm feel assuming like she would have had to have been over 18 to be a nurse. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Or close to 18, but I don't know. I don't know how the nurse training was right. back in that right. day. I but don't know how much school he graduated high school in 1948, and he and Marceline got married in June of 1949. Okay. Marceline was a Methodist, and he did not agree with those church, that church's racial segregation practices. Which this is the 60s, 50s? 40s. 40s. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I thought you said he was – okay, that makes sense. Yeah. High mm-hmm. Okay. So. Um, this obviously put some strain on their marriage, but they, they made it through. In 1951, he graduated with a degree in secondary education from college. That year, he also began attending gatherings of the Communist Party. He – Got a degree in secondary education. He did. Like to for children. Yes. To teach high school, yeah. Uh, okay. Yes. Yes. Right? <laughs> that's that's terrifying. I uh, know. He wanted... Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, again, that year he began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. In early 1952, he heard a sermon in the Methodist Church that emphasized loving members of all races. Mm-hmm. In early 1952, he had heard a sermon in the Methodist church that emphasized loving members of all races. He announced to his family that he would become a Methodist minister, since he believed that the church was ready to, quote, put some real socialism into practice. That summer, he was hired as a student pastor at the Somerset Southside Methodist Church. 
That is a mouthful. That is. In 1954, he was dismissed from his position. He later said it was because the church did not like him integrating African Americans into his congregation, but church leaders said it was because he was stealing church funds. And honestly, to his credit, he was one for racial equality. Uh, He, I think I read somewhere, tried to launch a project at that church to create a playground where um, it would be open for children of all races. Yeah, that's pretty progressive for that day and age. Definitely. I will say. So around this time, he visited a Pentecostal Latter Rain convention where a woman prophesied that Jones was a prophet with a great ministry. Prophesized the prophet. Prophesized the prophet. I prophesied you're the prophet. Jones took that to heart and founded his own church in 1954, initially naming it the Community Unity Church. Community Unity. It has a nice ring to it. Community Unity. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Don't hurt yourself. <laughs> I was trying to combine the words, but I so mean, they already kind of all are. They are. Um, community. <laughs> community unity. Unity in it. Unity. I know. How about that? <laughs> he observed a faith healing service at the Seventh-day Baptist Church, and this gave him the idea that these healings, and I will use that term loosely, quotation marks, could attract mm-hmm. people and generate income for them. And I say that I'm going to use the term healing loosely because Jones and his members knowingly faked healings. They went so far as to use chicken livers and other animal tissue, claiming that these were cancerous tissues which had been removed from the bodies of the people who had been healed. I saw one clip where a woman had a broken leg mm-hmm. with a cast on and just had it casted the day prior and he took that damn thing off and she could walk and she was magically able to walk fascinating i don't know how much longer she was able to walk after church service she did yes but yeah he cut the whole cast off the healer of bones did he have like a little saw thing yeah he kind of did i mean it was one of those you can't just cut through those things with scissors no especially not then those plaster casts are legit yeah so they kind of went out on a limb and did these healings because they found that the healings increased people's faith and brought in revenue that they could use to help the poor and to help finance the church, which it did. Jones was able to buy his first church building in Indianapolis located in a racially mixed neighborhood. He initially called it Wings of Deliverance, but soon renamed it the People's Temple Full Gospel Church. So, in order to increase publicity, the People's Temple organized large religious conventions with other Pentecostal pastors where they conducted healings and impressed attendees by revealing private information such as addresses, phone numbers, or social security numbers to prove their divine power. Um, But this information was something which private detectives could easily discover beforehand, especially if people are signing up. Um, like, oh yeah, I'm going to be there. And then you can look into whoever it is, but we're going to take the bad with the good. And the temple had a relaxed dress code, encouraging members to attend in casual clothes. So poor members would not feel out of place. It increased its population of black people from 15% to 50%. And at one time had up to 70%, I believe. And it had a soup kitchen for the poor and offered services like rental assistance, job placement services, free canned goods, clothing, and coal for winter healing. And they averaged something like 2,800 meals a month from the soup kitchen. So by the late 1950s, the style of the teachings were changing. 
the temple began to preach that members should abstain from sex and only adopt children, Jones would begin to paint Jesus as a communist by quoting Karl Marx's idea of, and this is a quote, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And he hoped that his Christian audience would recognize the similarities with the text from the Acts of the Apostles, Acts 4, 34, which states, distribution was made to each as any had need. And, you know, from a person who is not familiar with both Karl Marx's uh, teachings and also specific books of the Bible, uh, it does sound similar. So I think that he was uh, a little too smart for his own good and trying to play on those words. Sure. Especially with people who were familiar. So soon they began to tighten control over their members, requiring they spend Thanksgiving and Christmas with their temple family rather than their blood family. Members were asked to donate all of their material possessions in exchange for the temple promising to meet all of their needs in return. Why? You think that was a control thing? Like Absolutely. right from the beginning? Yeah. He's been very controlling from day one, like you were saying. Yeah. I just wonder, like, obviously he's very influential. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you wonder what the people in the beginning at least were thinking. Yeah. Why would I give up all of my goods? Like, what was he saying that it would be benefit? For? You know what I mean? It had to be something pretty compelling. Right. I mean, I feel like with a lot of cults and how they start i mean they all start from a very religious aspect and they're all about which jesus preached giving up everything for the kingdom and taking care of the poor and all that so i mean you can spin it that giving Mm -hmm. up everything is what god wants and go from there he preached that the united states was was the antichrist and capitalism was the antichrist system he preached of imminent nuclear holocaust after which the surviving would create a new socialist eden on earth so you see how things are kind of uh-huh. escalating. Yes. Um, in 1961, Jones claimed to have a vision that Indianapolis and Chicago were destroyed in a nuclear attack and insisted the church members move to, of all places, Redwood Valley, California. Okay. Which I'm sure is a great place, but it's just kind of random to me. Very Well, yeah. And not very close. No. That's a big move. You gotta get away from the uh, nuclear attack. I guess so. Areas. Yeah. So, in July of 1965, he led around 140 members to Redwood Valley and reestablished the church there, even though he denounced Christianity openly and rejected the Bible as, quote, white men's justification to dominate women and enslave people of color, end quote. Uh, His membership surprisingly continued to increase. The temple quickly outgrew Redwood Valley and expanded to L.A. and San Francisco in the early 1970s, and membership was up to nearly 3,000 people by the mid-70s. Members were unwittingly and gradually subjected to sophisticated mind control and behavior modification techniques borrowed from China and North Korea. Yikes. He liked those uh, communist dictatorships. I know, I know. The organizational structure within the temple was strange, to say the least. It was a select group of primarily college-educated white women that took on the most sensitive missions, and they were viewed as secret police within the temple. 
Others, known as the troops, consisted of working class members who were around 75% black. Uh, They would do things like set up chairs for meetings, fill offering boxes and other tasks. And then Jones surrounded himself with several dozen mostly white privileged members in their 20s and 30s who had skills in law, accounting, nursing, teaching, music, and administration, which just looking at that hierarchy, it makes me kind of uh, see like a a fault in Mm -hmm. his, like, is he practicing what he preaches about racial equality? For sure. This group carried out public relations, financial duties, and more mundane chores while still bringing in good salaries from their well-paying jobs. There were claims that the temple had more than 20,000 members, but it's estimated that it was no more than 5,000 at its peak. It's still... That's a lot of people. Yeah, it's still big, but it's a big difference (laughs) in numbers there. The church earned a reputation for aiding the poorest of citizens, especially Mm -hmm. racial minorities, drug addicts, and the homeless by making strong connections with the California state welfare system. They owned and ran at least nine residential care homes for the elderly, six homes for foster children, and a state-licensed 40-acre ranch for the developmentally disabled. Man, these people must have just been giving them all of their money. Otherwise, how else are they funding? Like, it's also really unfortunate that how bad this goes because mm-hmm. yeah, he was doing good things for the community. Right. Yeah. It's very It sad. makes you wonder, like, obviously what the motive was behind. Right. Why do you want to take over all of these things? Why do you want to have control over these people? Things took a turn in 1973 when eight young members known cleverly as the Gang of Eight defected. Oh together. Jones sent out multiple search parties to look for them, and this included scanning the highways and even renting an airplane to search from an aerial view. Wow. The gang of eight ended up driving three trucks loaded with firearms to Montana, where they wrote a long letter documenting their complaints. And this is what I think kind of spiraled things because Jones became very paranoid at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, He called 30 members to his house, waved a pistol around, and declared that in light of mass defection, they should all kill themselves to make a point. Mass defection. He had 5,000 members and eight Eight left. left. Yep. That's a mass defection. Wow. Yeah. Showing his how unstable he is, though. Definitely. And also, I'm kind of getting vibes of, like, he's feeling, like, insecurities and things like that absolutely yeah definitely so while the group did not execute the suicide plan jones described at the time they Mm -hmm. did conduct fake suicide rituals in the years that followed soon san francisco was the main hub for the temple and this is where jones now openly admitting that he was an atheist was able to be more open with his true political ideals Uh and the temple ended up having a large amount of power on the political scene due to its ability to draw a large voter turnout Mm. putting prominent political figures on their side he was keeping them in his pocket for sure Also on their side were parts of the media, including several local newspaper and television reporters who could provide favorable coverage for Jones and the temple. And honestly, this whole system that he had going worked until it didn't. Mm -hmm. And media investigations rose, putting an increasing amount of pressure on Jones, sparking the move of Jones and uh, hundreds of the temple members to Guyana. Here's kind of where I'm going to pick up, and this is where things are going to take a bad turn. So, like Boyson said, many of his followers uh, followed him to Guyana. They believed that it would be a utopia. And this is a kind of north of Brazil in South America. 
So they follow him. They think this is going to be the perfect place. It's going to be the perfect socialist community. But spoiler alert, it was not perfect. I mean, it was essentially their whole community. And I'm not going to go into too much detail about it. But they had schools. I mean, everything. So they would have discussions for school and lectures. And he started taking control of these. And instead of focusing on, you know, school it became lectures about revolution and who the enemies are, kind of like what you were talking about. He became very paranoid, conspiracy-driven, mm-hmm. focused on Soviet alliances, um, all kinds of things. And so we're also kind of here in the 70s, so Cold War. Let's think about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So at first, when they got there, people were working six days a week from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., Eventually, his health did start to go downhill, and we'll get to that, too. And his wife kind of started managing things more. And that's when it became like a five days a week, eight hours a day thing. So it kind of led up there. Um, After work, Temple members would attend classes or lectures in socialism. No media could be viewed without a Temple staffer present to interpret the material for them. So they couldn't watch the news. They couldn't see what was going on in the U.S. without someone there to interpret it for them. So kind of more of that brainwashing control aspect. Yeah, and by interpret, you mean like... Tell uh, you phrasing it yeah. into what fits their narrative. Yes, yeah. it's their narrative. Yeah. And on that topic, Jones also would provide news to the members and news is I'm going to put in quotations here, <laughs> where he portrayed the USA as capitalist and imperialist and evil, and would talk about Stalin and Kim Il Sung as positive leaders. And I know we talked about Hitler, he studied Hitler and would uh-huh. preach about Hitler's um, philosophies as well. And I think we can all agree Hitler was not a good guy. (laughs) Methods of punishment. So he was very strict. He forced, so if children misbehaved, forced them to spend a night at the bottom of a well, sometimes upside down. And this was called the torture hole. It's horrible. Yeah. And they also engaged in beatings. Um, Armed guards patrolled Jonestown 24-7. So children were cared for in a type of communal way. They only saw their parents briefly at night. So the parents weren't as involved. It was kind of just like this huge, everyone was taking care of the kids. Jones called himself father or dad, and most people would call them, call him, sorry, this as well. So the commune was mainly run by social security checks that the members received. And they said over a year, they could get up to $65,000 to help run this. Um, So the U.S. Embassy kind of intervened at this point, and they even went and interviewed all of these social security recipients to make sure that they're not being held against their will for their checks and make sure there's no, like, financial, Mm -hmm. you know, exploitation going on. Um, And they interviewed 75 people, and all 75 denied being held against their will, and none of them wanted to leave. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. It just shows you kind of how – I think brainwashed is a strong term, but just how brainwashed people were. were. Yeah. Um, So the U.S. Embassy kind of backed off at that point a little bit, but they were still keeping this – like, they were keeping a close eye as well. Well, I won't say close eye. They were keeping an eye on the situation as well, but they kind of backed off a little at that point. One eye, not two. Right. (laughs) They're like, well, they they want to stay. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm impressed a little bit Mm. that they even were investigating it at all. Well, I mean. Probably because their money was going. Right. And it was a lot of U.S. residents that just moved to this commune. And so I didn't really go into detail about Guyana and how – the country, like, it was this whole thing that he had to work out with the country on letting them stay there. And they came up with all these terms and agreements and basically, like, an agreement for them to stay there. But 
one of those conditions was the U.S. Embassy was kind of checking on them because they're all U.S. Mm-hmm. citizens. Mm-hmm. None of them, I mean, they didn't have like visas or anything like that, right. which I don't know in the 60s what that process was even like. No clue. But basically, they were allowed to kind of run themselves. Okay. So, like I said, I didn't go into that because it's a lot of just yeah. stuff I didn't really care to read about. Um, white knights we're going to talk a little bit about and like night, like evening, not like uh, a white knight. Okay. That's, I'm glad you clarified, actually, because that's not what I was picturing. Yes. (laughs) White knights were basically drills that Jones would run. And he believed, you know, we talked about his paranoia. He thought the CIA, he thought the FBI, he thought all of these agencies from the U.S. were after him and were conspiring to destroy their settlement. So he made them practice drills in case somebody tried to infiltrate or take over. That was a white knight. Knight with an N. So during this... He would tell his followers that they had four options. One, you can either attempt to flee to the Soviet Union, because he kept talking about that was like their escape plan. Two, commit revolutionary suicide. Three, you could stay in Jonestown and fight. Or four, flee into the jungle, because they're just this commune right by the jungle. None of those are great options. None of those are great options. I'd also like to know how you would flee to the Soviet Union. That's what I was thinking. Like you're north of Brazil. From South America? Yes. (laughs) Can't really flee there. Not like a hop, skip, and a jump. No. No. So like we said, he studied Hitler to learn how to manipulate people. Um, He was taught, quote, find an enemy and make sure they know who the enemy is, end quote, because this would unify them and make them subservient to him. Find a common enemy, and he made the U.S. the enemy. So during these white knight practices, they would practice, um, like I said, what would happen and practice mass suicides. Um, You mentioned that they did this several times, so this is one of the times that they did it. Um, They were given red liquid and told to drink it, and they would die in 45 minutes. Everybody did as told, but 45 minutes passed and nobody died. And he then told them after those 45 minutes that the poison wasn't real and they had passed a loyalty test. But then he also told them the time is coming for the real thing, so be prepared. <clears throat> and this um, happened more than once. More than once. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't know what mindset these people were in, but can you imagine the, I don't know, the the trauma that people would go through thinking, right. I'm about to die. Okay, I'm going to die. And then you don't die. And it also makes me wonder, like, how, like, when we get to that, when it actually does happen, did any of them even really believe it at first? Sure. That is the definition of a mindfuck right yeah. there. Yeah. Damn it. So during all of this time, he's receiving monthly half a pound of cyanide, and he started receiving this in 1976. Monthly shipments were coming in. Who's supplying him with that? Well, he – sorry, do you talk about it? Mm-mm. He said that – or he got a license as a jeweler and said that he needed to clean gold. And so apparently – They're like, mm, sounds cyanide, legit. Cyanide's used to clean gold. Jeez. Yeah. And again, 60s. I mean, things probably True. weren't monitored as heavily as they are now. Yeah, but still. I know. Still, it's not it great. It seems like a lot of cyanide. He had a doctor there um, who practiced giving pigs cyanide because, fun fact, their metabolism is very close to how ours function. That Did is a that. fun fact. Yeah. Another fun fact. So when we say we eat like a pig. We kind of do. We do. Our metabolisms are close to I theirs. I like that. So this doctor... In quotation, I mean, he was a doctor, so he used to be. Yeah, he wasn't practicing anymore. (laughs) He was a, I want to say, a drug addict that um, Jones was able to help get clean, Mm -hmm. and then he supported him through college to become a doctor for to to be the resident doctor. Yeah, and they needed a doctor, and it talked about also because they're in this commune, this closed off from society. Disease was there. They had fevers, diarrhea. I mean, you're living in the Mm -hmm. middle of a jungle. Mm -hmm. So 
they did have a lot of medical problems going on. So 1977, there was a custody disagreement with one of the kids who was living in the commune with family who was also still back in the U.S. Um, and family was threatening to take them to court, suing all of this stuff. And this scared Jones so bad that he set up a white night simulation, thinking that they were going to come get him and come get this kid and find out everything. And it was a six-night simulation called the Six-Day Siege. So during this time, he told Temple members about the attacks from the outsiders, had them thinking that these people were going to come in and ruin everything. And he had the he had his followers surround the town with guns and machetes 24-7. Um, finally, after the six-stage siege, he no longer trusted the Guyanese government because he thought that they were going to come storming in with the U.S., so he and the temple members conducted meetings with embassies from the Soviet Union, North Korea, Yugoslavia, and Cuba. And they even had a visit from a high-ranking correspondent of the Soviet news agency in April 1978. So he's kind of like trying to get an escape plan, basically, but going to these communist countries. Right. So October 2nd, 1978, Fyodor Tumovev. He was a counsel for the Soviet Union, and he visited Jonestown to even meet with the people and just kind of talked with them. And I think this is kind of Jones, like, encouraging them to, mm -hmm. like, hey, we could go to the Soviet Union. Yeah, I'm fascinated that he even got somebody uh, he, to come He, like you there. said, he had a lot of people in his pocket. Yes, he did. Okay, so we're going to talk about the concerned relatives. So these are family members back in the USA who had family members who were living in the commune. And they were... Very concerned about yeah. their family members. So they started writing letters to the U.S. Secretary of State and the Guyanese government to try to get attention drawn to their loved ones in this cult. So they're basically trying to get the media attention as well as the U.S. attention. Like, U.S. Embassy was aware, but like USA. Yeah. Congress, Secretary of State, all of them. So April 11th, 1978, the concerned relatives distributed distributed affidavits and letters titled, quote, an accusation of human rights violations by Reverend James Warren Jones to the press and to members of Congress and expressed concern over the crimes committed there as well as the substandard living conditions. Like I said, disease was everywhere. Sure. They're abusing children. There was lots of concern. Around this time, 1978, Jones's health kind of starts to decline. He had a lung infection, but told his followers it was lung cancer to try to garner sympathy. Um, Why couldn't he be healed? Yeah. Great question. Heal yourself. Well, he was using lots of medications. He was using barbiturates, stimulants, Valium, <laughs> and Qualudes. 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 I didn't look None up what that is. None of which cure lung infections. What's Qualudes? It's an anxiolytic. It lowers anxiety. Okay. And a sedative hypnotic drug. So, like I said, none of which fall into the category no. of healing lung infections. He also had high blood pressure, chronically. Um, small strokes. They said he had several of those. In the last two weeks of Jonestown, he had lost about 30 to 40 pounds in those two weeks. So, I mean, he was just going downhill. Um, he also had convulsions and temporary blindness and would go three, four days without sleep um, and began to have slurred speech. He wouldn't finish his sentences. He was just kind of rambling and tangential and was extremely paranoid. And so they said he was just his mental state was not great by the end. Makes me very curious as to what infection he had going on and did it cause... You know, his already unstable mental health. Yeah. Like encephalopathy. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's also, this is 1978, so he's late 50s. I mean. I mean, that's not that's bad. Not, not that no. bad, but he also has an ac had access to medical care. So we really don't know what was going on with him. Yeah. Yeah. I know they did an autopsy on him. I wonder if they did. 
it, the main thing that comes to my mind is like a brain tumor. Mm. Yeah. That's a good point. Plus, he's abusing lots of drugs. Well, Which there's that. Medications, yeah. <laughs> that will – that can also do it. <laughs> All right. So, we're going to get to the not fun part uh, and talk about Leo Ryan. So he is the California he is California's 11th congressional district congressman. So he announced he would visit Jonestown. Like I said, concerned relatives have been petitioning to him, so he finally is like, "Look, I'm going to go see what this is all about." Mm-hmm. He was friends with a Temple member's father, Bob Houston, which neither of you talked about, so I didn't go into detail because I thought you would. <laughs> That's okay. Bob Houston was a member whose body was found mutilated on a train track. In October 1976, after he discussed leaving the temple. Ooh. This Bob Houston, his father, is friends with Leo Ryan. And Leo Ryan just happens to be in Congress and is like, look, I'll go investigate because I have personal ties to this. Yeah. There's all these allegations swirling around. So on November 14th of 1978, he flies down to Jonestown with the crew. And there's a lot of people who came with him, camera crews from NBC. There was some concerned relatives, representatives. There was also some magazine and newspaper reporters. I mean, he had quite a few people with him. So they all flew down. So initially they were denied access when they got there. Um, but on November 17th, three days later, Jones finally agreed to let some of them come. He didn't want all of them there. So they landed in an airstrip about six miles away from Jonestown. Um, Ryan, the congressman, was allowed to come, and three others were allowed to come with him, but that was it. The others were um, allowed to come in after like a day or so after sunset. So they had this huge party, this reception basically for them. They were treated very nicely. Um, but Jones also was ranting about government conspiracies and being a martyr the entire time, too. So, again, yeah. this is near the end. He's not doing well. Later, we found out that Jones had run rehearsals before they came to convince. He was, like, telling everybody, we got to make sure they know we're happy. So mm-hmm. he was, like, telling them how to act. Yeah. So two Temple members, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, moved to defect that night. So they passed a note to Leo Ryan saying... We need help getting out. Oh. Um, Several families ended up leaving in the next couple of days as well. And Jones gave them permission to leave. So most of the Ryan party, when it was time for them to leave, they began to depart on a truck to go to the airstrip six miles away. Um, But Ryan stayed behind to help any others who wanted to leave. Basically kind of like his last ditch. Like, hey, if you want to come with us, you can come with us. A temple member pulled a knife on him. He was unhurt, but he was like, okay, I'm done. We're going to leave. Time to go. And threatened to file a criminal complaint against him when he got Mm -hmm. back to the U.S. So originally they had a 19-seater plane, but they ended up having too many people who Mm -hmm. defected that they needed to get a second plane. So the U.S. Embassy arranged for one, but when they got to the airstrip, neither plane was there yet. So they were a little early. So there's this guy named Leighton. He was a loyalist who all of a sudden when they're packing up to leave and getting on the trucks, he was like, oh, yeah, I want to defect too. I want to leave. And everybody thought this was really suspicious because he was like one of the Mm -hmm. most loyal members. Yeah. So there's two planes. The planes get there. They split up. Some of them start getting on one plane. Leighton gets on that plane with them. And as people started boarding, he started shooting. Uh, He wounded two people, did not kill anyone. um, And he was disarmed pretty quickly. So while the other plane was being loaded, a tractor with a trailer driven by members of the Temple's Red Brigade security squad arrived and opened fire. There was about nine shooters, they said, who surrounded these two planes. So Ryan, the congressman, was killed. He was shot more than 20 times. A defector, Patricia Parks, was also killed. 
NBC cameraman Bob Brown was killed. Sherwin Harris, who was a member of the Concerned Relatives, was killed. And Greg Robinson, who was a magazine photographer, was killed. And he was with the examiner. So the plane left. The other planes stayed behind and any injured members kind of were left behind. So they didn't kill everybody, but they injured a lot and they just kind of left them there and went back to the commune. And we're going to come back to that. Um, So before the incident, Ryan told them, he told Jones, like, I'm going to describe Jonestown in good terms. He stated that he spoke to 60 people. None of them wanted to leave. Uh, The 14 defectors who did leave were a pretty small portion of the residents. I mean, he had over 900 people. Yeah. So 14 out of 900 is nothing. And he's told Jones, quote, I'd still say you have a beautiful place here. But Jones still walked away from that thinking all was lost. And that's why he sent them to go kill people. So after they left to head to the airstrip, aides back at the commune began to prepare grape flavor aid poisoned with many things, including cyanide. So I didn't know this. It also had Benadryl, uh, Phenergen, Thorazine, Chloroquine, Chloral Hydrate, which is another sedative, and Valium. (laughs) Thank you. Phenergen. Phenergen. Dang it. Chloroquine. Chloroquine. And Valium. So (laughs) he sedated them. With a lot of things. On top of poisoning them. So then they called everyone to the pavilion. So there is a 44-minute long cassette tape that you can find online called the Death Tape that recorded this last meeting that Jones called on November 18th of 1978. I have no desire to listen to that. I do not want to hear it. And I'm honestly like, it kind of sickens me that you can just listen to it on the internet if you Google it. Because I think that's something that should be. You can do a lot of things on the internet I know. that are unfortunate. I know. That's just something that I don't think anybody needs to listen to. So he told he told them all when he gathered them that the plane that was carrying all those people away was going to crash. And then they would come in and take all of the children away. Um, and he said, you know, now's the time to commit revolutionary suicide. Uh, the theory was, quote, you can go down in history saying you chose your own way to go, and it is your commitment to refuse capitalism and in support of socialism. Temple members um, argued for an airlift to the Soviet Union, because remember, that was one of his options yes. he gave them. And so they were like, well, why don't we just go to the Soviet Union if they're going to come in? But others started arguing for reincarnation and the mass suicide. So they were going back and forth. And finally, Jones told them, look, the congressman Ryan is dead. And as soon as he said that, like on the tape, they said, there's no more arguing. Mm-hmm. Like they all just accepted it then. Um, probably because they knew like that was not going to go over well that right. they killed a congressman. Right. The first to take the poison was Ruletta Paul and her one-year-old infant um, that she squirted poison into her infant's mouth. And then she injected herself. That is the worst part to me. Yeah. Um, and they said on the tape that children were the first ones to get the poison people began to show reluctance when people actually started dying. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you said, they had practiced this practiced this for so long. I don't think at the beginning they thought this was going to actually be for right. real. And they said children died within five minutes. Like it was wow. quick. Was their metabolism. And they said babies, it was less than five minutes. Sure. So, I mean, that baby died probably right away. Wow. Um, adults, it took about 20 to 30 minutes. So after they were given the... Poison. They were escorted down a wooden walkway outside. Jones said, quote, die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Dignity. Don't lay down with tears and agony. The parents started freaking out. Um, there was hysteria, confusion, because they were watching their kids die uh-huh. before themselves. Um, and it was suggested the 
previous meal that they had all had together had also been laced with sedatives because they were all just mainly walking around in a trance after that. Like once it started getting in their systems, they said they just seemed glazed over, foggy eyed, which it's all the sedatives that Mm -hmm. they gave them. On the tape, you can hear like, I didn't listen to it, like I said, but it was reported on the tape. You can hear the cries and the screams of children and adults and like just people freaking out. And I'm like, that's why I'm like, this should not be anything that someone should have to listen to. Armed guards surrounded them, threatening to shoot them if they did not take the poison. So it was like, you're either going to be killed by a gunshot or you're going to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. Eventually, once more and more people started dying, the guards took the poison as well. Jones was found laying next to his chair between two other bodies with a self-inflicted gunshot, gunshot wound to the left temple. So he didn't even take the poison. He shot himself. And it was really unclear when he did this. Like, who knows if this was early on or if it was after everyone. So this was the greatest single loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act until 9-11 happened. (sighs) All right. Several escaped. Tim Carter and his brother Mike and then another guy named Mike Prokes. They were given a mission that day, but they realized what was happening and they, like, raced back to the commune to try to stop it. Tim Carter discovered got there just in time to see his son being poisoned, and then his oh. wife killed herself when she realized what she had done. Um, and he had to be dragged away by his brother to safety. Oh. Yeah. Another commune member volunteered to go get a stethoscope and hid under a building um, and was saved that way. Another man, he was hearing impaired, and so he missed the announcement overhead and then laid down in a ditch pretending to be dead when he realized what was happening. Wow. Um, Another woman crawled under her bed when she realized what was happening and survived this way because they didn't go looking for Mm, them. Yeah. I mean, this is 900 plus people. Some people had injections, like you could see the needle marks. Um, So questions arose whether this was like relief injections to quicken their death and reduce their suffering from all the convulsions that probably was taking over their body. Doctors in the U.S. only performed autopsies on seven of the bodies, and Jones was one of them. So Georgetown had a temple headquarters. Georgetown is the closest city. Uh, to where the commune was, and they had a headquarters there. They received radio communication to commit revolutionary suicide. Um, Sharon Amos was there with her children, who were aged 21, 11, and 10. She took them into a bathroom and killed the 10 and 11-year-old with a kitchen knife. Her 21-year-old daughter then assisted her and killed her mother and then killed herself. Jeez. And so the people who escaped, Tim Carter and his brother Mike, they went to the temple headquarters in Georgetown to try to stop them and found their bodies on top of that. And just like reading through this afterwards, several, or not several, but I know there was at least two of the members who escaped, uh, killed themselves within a few months just from the severe PTSD. I can't even imagine. Yeah. So back to the airstrip. Um, Like I said, they kind of left them there, the wounded. And so there was 11 wounded um, and the others who were not in the party stayed, you know, nearby in Georgetown or in a tent basically set up at that airstrip until they could get to safety so 900, there was 918 uh, deaths. 912 of those uh, bodies were collected by the U.S. military and transported to Dover Air Base, Air Force Base in Delaware, where they were fingerprinted. Their bodies had to be processed. Next of kin had to be notified. I mean, it was yeah, 912 people. people. Uh, numerous individuals from the Air Force Base who had to work this and do this job later suffered from PTSD just because they said it was just... A massive catastrophe, honestly, which, yeah, I'm sure anyone who had to do this had PTSD from seeing that. There is a Jonestown Memorial at Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California, where about half of the bodies um, 
really most of them were cremated. So about half of the um, victims are there. Their remains were scattered there. Layton, so the guy who opened fire at the airstrip, he survived. He pled not guilty for being brainwashed was his defense. And he was found not guilty. So he was deported back to the U.S. because they were like, you can't stay here. And was arrested by U.S. Marshals the second he set foot on U.S. soil. Wow. Um, because they had found him not guilty in another country, though, he could not be tried for attempted murders in USA. But he was tried under another federal statute for assassinating members of Congress and internationally protected individuals. So Ryan was a member of Congress. He's internationally protected. And Dwyer was another member um, who wasn't with Congress, but he was internationally protected because of his status. He didn't die, but he attempted to kill him as well. Yeah. So he was convicted of conspiracy and aiding and abetting the murder of Ryan and attempted of Dwyer. Um, he was paroled in 2002 and to this day is the only person to be held criminally responsible for any of the events at Jonestown. Wow. Well, that's a doozy. Yeah. Yikes. It's one of those stories where like we've heard about it, you know, a lot of yeah. our lives and you've seen a documentary or two, but you don't know all of the details that go into it mm -hmm. and there's really quite a lot that goes into it from his early life to the people's temple to what actually happened in jonestown and so while it is fascinating i also at one point i don't know how many years after maybe it was right after but um there is a gallup poll that estimated 98 percent of mm -hmm. americans knew about jonestown yeah. like it was just everybody knew about it I mean, it was the greatest loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act until 9-11. Yeah. And that's like in history of mm -hmm. USA. You know, excluding wars and all of that, but 918 people. Yeah. It's terrible. It's it's hard to fathom. Like, and I was reading a little bit um, just about some of the people who stumbled up or not stumbled upon that site, but who arrived there. It was members from the U.S. Embassy and then, of course, the government there. And they were just, like, talking about how it's, like, nothing that they had ever seen before. Just seeing all these bodies. Of course. Yeah. Like, and just the PTSD. They all said that they had some members who, not members, but some of the people who had to deal with that and process those bodies committed suicide as well because they just couldn't handle it. That's a lot. Especially the, the children. Mm-hmm. That's the part that got me. And, like, when it was saying, like, you can hear the children screaming on the recording, I was like, no. Yeah. Like, this is something that we do not need to have access to. Yeah. I don't know. This is this is a, a tough one on kind of multiple levels. And, I mean, I know that we always say that we like to cover – we would like to cover more cults. Mm -hmm. This just kind of takes it to the extreme of um, – this is the extreme, it honestly. I mean, is. it's – Probably when people think of cults, like even outside the U.S., people know of Jonestown. Yeah. And I think of when people think of cults, this is what they think of. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of become like a common saying, don't drink the Kool-Aid yeah. because of this. And like after reading about this, I'm like that. It's so insensitive. It's so insensitive. Also, it was flavored, but it it's very flavor It was flavored and it wasn't even red. It, it was, was grape. grape. Do you know what else I think is frustrating? Um, and this is just kind of the impression I get from watching documentaries or any shows that might cover it. And they kind of paint cult leaders as like this fabulous person. They have their dark side, but really, they're so attractive to these people who just follow them anywhere. And, you know, they just draw them in and this, that, and the other. And then you start looking through their history and really there are red flags 
right from the get-go. There was red flags all the way, yeah. <laughs> yes. And e- even through high school, like that's still pretty early. Yeah. That, I-, I don't know. I mean, like maybe their personality is great, but what? I don't understand. I feel like red flag number one should be if anybody is like studying Hitler's philosophy. I know. I'm like, no, that's not someone you should ever study. Outside of a historian, no. Right. 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 Well, also, maybe <laughs> giving roadkill their own funerals and caskets. <laughs> Sorry, that's red flag. That's a that's that's a something. Also, jumping off a building because you have because you can super, fly superpowers. Yeah. Yes, I mean just like I mean there were lots of things, lots of fl- red flags. It was a row of red flags yeah. right from the get go, and it's hard to even fathom. And this is no judgment to anybody who has had similar experiences or maybe gotten into things that they later regretted. It's just hard to fathom from the outside looking in how you can follow. And I think that that's just of, that just it. Like if you're not part of that right crew that's brainwashed, if you're not on the inside, if you're not living that day by day, then you can't truly understand. Sure. Yeah. I know it's really easy to judge and and I just think that it's unfair to those people to, For sure. to judge. I think that there were um, kind of more powers at play than that. It just makes you sad. Makes you wish you could just absolutely shake people and say, "No, this is not good. Right, this is not okay." I do want to add, just because this was recent, that August 2014. So as so- recent as that, there was still nine people whose bodies had never been claimed oh. from Jonestown. Yes, um, and they're they were cremated at that point, and so. You know, people kind of got hold of that. And four had been claimed. Five still had not. So they were publicly identified trying to get, like, next of kin, hoping family could come claim these because this is September 2014. But all five remain unclaimed. So they are just at the Jonestown Memorial, you know, at that um, cemetery in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And they're just there. So five people we still don't. Maybe they didn't have next of kin. I mean, that could be it, too. Because a lot of times with cults, you know, they see they kind of get vulnerable people who are homeless or have yeah. no family or have nobody. So, yeah, these are definitely eye opening stories. So I'm glad we covered it. Yes. And uh, very interesting. It's something like least. we need to know about. Right. I feel like, like, I mean, like a lot of history is terribly sad exactly. and upsetting. Like, I kind of liken this to like 9 11. Like, I can't even look at 9 11. Yeah. I can't watch documentaries about 9 11. Yeah, I'm the same. And Jones sounds like that. Like, I couldn't look at photos. I couldn't look at videos. I was like, hell no to watching right. or listening to recording. Yeah. I can't do documentaries about it. But it, at the same time, like, it is something that it happened. It happened. And I think, like, out of respect, we need to be aware of. Right. I agree. So, that is why we did this episode. It is a very popular topic. So, we wanted to cover it. Um, like I said, thanks, guys, for sticking with us because I know that that was kind of a downer of a topic. I mean, it is. You guys can always catch us out the – ah. Mm-hmm. Don't redo that. <laughs> catch us out. You guys can always <laughs> – You got this. Check us out. Why am I trying to say catch? <laughs> catch me outside. You <laughs> catch, catch me outside. How about catch that? Catch his hands. You can catch his hands. <laughs> no. <laughs> you guys can always catch us at – <laughs> catch us at what am no, I no. Check, us check us out, out. Yep. what I is wrong it. with me <laughs> <laughs> alright guys you can always check us out at thetipsyghost.com and find our socials from there and you can always send us an email at thetipsyghost at gmail.com if you have ideas for a topic you would like us to discuss 
please give us a five-star rating and a great review anywhere you listen to podcasts. It really does help, and we really appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can always... Oh, shoot. <laughs> That's Just check us out, okay? <laughs> say that all again. Catch me outside. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> thanks so much for tuning in this week, guys. We will catch you guys next week. <laughs> okay, bye. 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 <laughs>